And now we invite our last panel that everyone has been waiting for, the analyst panel, to close out the forum. And if we can have... And then we'll have Bob Bush of Calamos kick off the last session. Right. Thank you, Bob. Right. You opened and closed out the forum. <laughs> so I start this or do you start it? Do I start this or do you start it? Okay. Okay, we'll get started, folks. Last panel, so I'm the only thing, it's between you and cocktails, so I don't want to hold you up. Uh, well, this is the analyst panel, and um, saving last for best, I think, we'll say that. One thing about the analysts is they are, when you look at the closed-end fund business, they are what I would call the sort of the last line of defense. They're the ones that truly are supporting the industry, in a, and I would say probably as an altruistic way as you can get. So, um, and I've always said this, the analysts, they cover the closed-end fund space. They are quality, uh, dedicated people. Unfortunately, just aren't enough of them. Uh, but the ones that are here are, um, are truly uh, sages, and they, they provide a very uh, supportive environment for the business. And I think the theme that you've seen throughout this whole conversation today has been that it's about support any way we, we can do it. So um, uh, starting to my immediate right, uh, what I'll do is we'll go down the aisle real quick and just tell me, uh, give me your name and your, uh, your background real quick. Mariana Farina at uh, Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Um, I've been with the firm throughout a few name changes uh, since 1991 and uh, have been covering closed-end funds and exchange-traded funds most of that time. Good afternoon, Michael Jabara. I co-head the manager research team at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Uh, I've been covering closed-end funds since 2002 um, and I guess in some aspects I go back, and my first firm actually is the firm that Mariana works for. I started at Prudential Securities. Uh, my name is Alex Rice. I work in the equity research department at Stiefel, and also like Mariana, a couple of name changes, but basically same spot for 20 years. Great. Well, thanks, folks. And I'm Bob Bush. I'm uh, director of closed-end funds at Calamo. So a uh, lot to cover, um, not a lot of time, so we're going to try to cover it fairly quickly. So IPO secondary market topic. Um, premiums have evaporated. Discounts are prevalent wider, uh, especially with respect to the fixed income funds. Uh, IPOs have, uh, at least in the last couple of years, have underperformed um, for a host of reasons. Trading at discounts, they've cut distributions, lots of return of capital. Uh, are you know, closed-end fund stock prices, are they anticipating stock uh, distribution cuts? 
Um, we're in the, in the market right now with a closed-in fund product. Hopefully, we can get that off the ground. I know the streets all rooting for them um, because it'll break the, the logjam that we have, and hopefully that'll be a healthier market and ones that certainly we can get, uh, get more access to capital. But um, Mariana, at this point, direct question, is there value in the secondary market? And if so, where would you, where would you go? Um, I think there's definitely value in the secondary market. Um, having said that, I was checking that a couple of days ago, and I think there were about 20 funds still trading at premiums, and, and some of them really high premiums. But that's an aside. Um, the discounts, if we look at the average discount for the entire closed-end fund universe, uh, yes, they have widened, and especially uh, last month, they have widened even further, um, making them uh, particularly interesting. Having said that, um, we were talking about this uh, earlier and a few days ago, there is a chance that um, there may be some tax or selling pressure that we've seen before. We, this is not new. We've seen it a few times. It doesn't happen every single year, but um, there's some selling pressure, close and funds not being extremely liquid. Um, just a little bit of pressure, selling pressure will cause the discounts to widen. So am I willing to say that right now is the, the widest discount we're going to say for the rest of the year? N I'm not quite there yet. Um, I think discounts are wide for sure, um, but it is possible that they may get just a little bit wider. But for those of us who, uh, in several in this, this room, who have done this for a few years or a few decades, We've seen this before. This is deja vu. It's not new. And we have not seen it only once, uh, not only twice, more than that. So um, I think for some of us, it's not new. And one of the things you want to, and this is a note that we made from one of the earlier conference uh, panels, was that there's relative value and there's absolute value. So oftentimes, a closed-end fund Maybe trading at a discount, but the question is, is it a deeper discount than what it typically trades at? Um, so again, it could be relative, uh, absolute value relative to its NAV, but uh, uh, I'm sorry, absolute value relative to its NAV, but a relative value could be, you know, just because of the discount doesn't mean it's not a bargain relative to what its trading range has been. Yeah, that's very, if, if I may just add to that. By all means. Uh, it's something that I, I mentioned earlier. Um, when we evaluate the discounts, we don't only look at what's the discount right now. Um, but what is the discount of that fund relative to its own history, at least for the last um, 12 months, uh, relative to the peer group? Um, where is that peer group trading relative to the entire closed-end fund universe? And, and maybe, I, hopefully, identifying for what reason. Um, uh, so, for example, one of the, the biggest shifts that, that I've seen in the past few months is covered call funds were trading cheaply. But that valuation has gotten much more richer um, in the past few months, which it kind of makes sense to me. At least the, the rationale behind that, uh, in my opinion, is um, people are probably looking for some kind of a hedge. There is no perfect hedge and there is no perfect protection, but at least a covered call will give you some protection on the downside. And so I could see how people have been willing to pay up for that. Um, and the other peer group that has done basically the opposite um, are some of the preferred closed-end funds, where they were typically very expensive. Uh, in fact, if you found a preferred fund at a discount, that was not that common. Um, but probably due to the interest rate sensitivity of that asset class and how they've done, 
that's a valuation that has come down substantially. So just some. Great, helpful. Alex, we saw a lot of big deals over the yeah. last couple of years, real big deals. Um, does that indicate top of market? Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so do big deals indicate the top of the market? Short answer is yes, but it's, it's, it goes back to that old adage of correlation and causation, right? If you have a white hot market, you're going to have big deals, right? So last year, we had a couple of multi-billion dollar deals. They were one or two that were really eye-popping in their size. Um, you know, if the party had kept on rolling along and 2022 was an easy year and the equity market's up 10% and basically everything's working, that big deal from last year would have been the prelude to this year's humongous deal, right? So when the party stops, the party stops for everyone. And so last year was just an amazing year. Everything went right. Every asset class performed well. Just everything worked. And so I think it's unsurprising in that environment uh, to see asset raises be very, very large. And then once the music stops, um, it's, it's hard to raise those assets. So I don't think that the size of the IPOs, the size of the deals, is in and of itself responsible for those turns in the markets and therefore doesn't have a ton of predictive value. Um, Although every time you get a supersized print like that and you see deals that are really, really big, you think to yourself in the back of your mind, um, things are really good and the market doesn't care about good or bad, it cares about better or worse. And when things are really, really good, it's unfortunately easy for some things to deteriorate and, and then mark, yes, that big deal was the top of the market. Right. Um, Michael. We have had, obviously, we've had a trade-off relative to price to NAV. So we've seen a widening of, of discounts, but certainly more at the fixed income and the, relative to the fixed income funds than the equity funds. The equity funds have, by and large, kind of held in there. They haven't had the impact that the bond funds have had. Um, have but we, you know, we've gone from 17 billion of issuance in 2021 to like one this year. The market's effectively shut. We're trying to get a new deal out. We'll see where that goes. Is, is the dearth of new issuance in some way, shape, or form supporting the secondary market? Is that one of the reasons maybe we're not seeing the market trade off as, as badly as it might, given what's going on out there? I mean, I don't, I mean, from a valuation standpoint, yes. I mean, but like, quite frankly, the lack of new issuance hasn't helped. I mean, funds have gotten clobbered kind of across the board. But in all seriousness, I do think, you know, anytime you take away supply, um, from the market that certainly is going to help the, the, the secondary trading. Um, but quite frankly, like I'm not sure that's a big piece of it. It's more the macro environment. That's what's driving things. You know, the interest rate sensitivity in the market, that's why the fixed income funds uh, arguably are, are in, in a lot of instances trading cheaper than, um, you know, the equity funds. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it certainly helps, but that's not in my mind the primary driver. It really is all about the macro environment. Yeah, well, that makes sense. If, if I could add maybe one sure. more thing to that. I, I don't disagree. I think there may be an, an additional factor, and that is um, dividend changes. Um, we know that generally dividend cuts, especially if they tend to be double-digit dividend cuts, um, tend to have an impact on valuation, on the premium or the discount. The discounts may widen uh, or the premiums may narrow. Um, and where we have seen more dividend cuts 
these past few months are the municipal funds. Um, municipal funds tend to generally pay what they earn, and if they're earning less, then they cut the dividend. If they're earning more, they raise the dividend. And so we've, we've seen that it's a little bit more of a um, quicker reaction. Um, the dividends is a quicker reaction to what they're earning, and uh, related to that, as the cost of borrowing goes up. And so I think that's maybe another reason where the fixed income um, funds are trading at bigger discounts because people are seeing those dividend cuts. Um, with taxable funds and equity funds, they tend to be more of managed distributions. So that is more of a, an art, not as much of a precise science of you're earning it or you're not earning it. And so therefore, um, I think the dividends have been a little bit stickier. They don't have not moved as much. And that may be another reason why the discounts um, are a little bit tighter, maybe on the equity side. I would argue taxable. Yeah, no, I, I agreed. And I mean, I think, and you know, would love Alex and Mariana's view. Like, I, you know, from just anecdotally, the calls that we're taking, I'm not seeing the levels of capitulation yet, right? Like, it's not. We're not seeing the 15, 20 plus discounts, which sometimes in crises you do see, right? So it's not that panic selling which to me leads, maybe we haven't quite seen the bottom yet. Or hopefully we have educated people over the <laughs> decades and so they're not panicking. <laughs> don't hold your breath. <laughs> That's all helpful. Now I know we had a panel on leverage, but that discussion was really towards the different types of leverage that's out there. But I think it's important because particularly in this environment where leverage is an issue, um, and it's not, somebody said earlier, it's not an issue till in, in a, in a in a positive environment, uh, but it's always an issue when you know your your interest rates are getting higher and the costs are going up as far as leverage is concerned, which may result in distribution cuts and perhaps a depletion in the stock price. Um, one of the things we talked about is, from a research perspective, Mariana, what should investors right now in this environment what should they consider in the context of leverage when buying a closed-end fund? This may sound too basic, but make sure that they understand how leverage works and that a fund is leveraged. Um, ask the question, make sh it will help to identify why a fund may have underperformed um, an index that is not leveraged. And I would not blame a fund for underperforming because it is leveraged, so it should underperform just like it should outperform in an up market. So just understanding the basics of leverage, understanding um, maybe the cost of borrowing, we heard very clearly on the leverage panel that um, many years ago it used to be very plain vanilla, auction rate preferreds, floating rate for everyone, pretty much the same, almost everyone. Now it's, it's so much, uh, it's much more varied. Um, some fixed cost of borrowing, some floating. I mean, the, the vehicles used for leverage are, are very uh, diverse, so um, maybe, Understanding that the, the sensitivity of that the cost of borrowing to to higher um, interest rates. Um, also, understanding another thing that is very important, especially in these kinds of markets, or like what we had in 2008, um, and in a couple of cases for the MLPs, if the assets go down too much, then they may start violating asset coverage ratios, which means that they have to start deleveraging, which means that uh, the dividends are going to come down. And, and we've seen a few very substantial dividend cuts in those cases. Uh, in very few cases, they've had to omit distributions. Um, 
so far for a very short period of time, and then they were able to, to start paying again. But uh, just kind of the, the mechanics of, of leverage and the implications of, of that. So, so Michael, when you're analyzing a fund and you're looking at the distribution history, um, you know, is, is, is the beginning of seeing a lot of return of capital as a component, an estimated component of the distribution, sort of a harbinger to perhaps uh, a distribution cut? Uh, and, and, and sort of another way to look at it, particularly with respect to bond funds, or is there is the market pricing in some type of a overall expectation of a distribution cut, given where they think the um, the interest rates are? Yeah, I mean, I think you know part of the uh, you know when we're doing the analytical work and kind of like what Mariana said, it's it's more of an art than science, right? And it's looking at what the underlying portfolio, the type of cash flows that it actually does produce, and. You know, inevitably, you want to see the fund earning more of what it pays out, right, and less of that return of capital. But, uh, you know, quite frankly, I think if you take a step back, you know, and, and you look at the percentage of, of return of, of, of principal, um, yeah, I mean, when you see uh, huge amounts and you see the underlying NAV dropping at the same time, you know, that certainly uh, is problematic and often predictive of a potential uh, dividend cut. Um, you know, when we look at the, the, the market, I, you know, I would say, listen, a lot of the pain is discounted in, um, but, you know, it, not, it, not necessarily fully, right? I, I mean, I, I don't think I would sit here and tell you that, um, you know, that, we, that we've seen the widest dis discounts that we're going to see. I mean, one potential catalyst, which was mentioned earlier, is tax loss selling, right? Now, you could argue there are a lot of places to go to tax loss this year, right? I'm not sure folks are necessarily going to pick on closed-end funds. You can quite frankly pick almost any asset. Um, but nonetheless, if we do see uh, you know, tax loss selling, that certainly could be uh, an additional leg of discount widening. So uh, long story short, and Bob, to answer your, your question, um, you know, meaningful amounts of uh, you know, return of capital obviously can be dangerous. Um, it shouldn't be looked at in isolation. You need to look at how the NAV is also performing. Um, but, you know, it, it, these are all things as analysts that we look at. And Alex, just to sort of finish the topic, when, when you're analyzing a fund right now and consider buying it, are you going to, with, with, with the understanding that leverage over the long term is positive and it's given, it's been accretive to funds, otherwise it wouldn't do it, frankly. But in this immediate environment, is it, does it, is it more critical to assess the leverage level that the fund historically uses? Yeah, uh, let, let, me, let me just say this. So first of all, when you're on a panel like this, the first rule that you learn is just like echo whatever Mariana says and you're probably <laughs> you're good. safe all good. and you can get out and your reputation is fine. Um, so the point of like understand that your fund is leveraged like sounds so basic, but how many times have we been on the phone and they're like, why is my fund doing this? And you say, well, it's a levered fund and the expenses and the spread and the this and that. And they go, this is a leveraged fund. I didn't know it was a leveraged fund. I want out of this fund. And, you know, so it's like, you know, yes, understand what you own and what the implications of it are sounds so basic, but it is, it's the 80-20 rule. It's worth so much more than almost anything else you can do. Um, as far as the amount of leverage and the exposure that you give yourselves, um, I look at it, at each sort of asset class a little bit differently. Um, when you have very, very volatile assets, you should, I think you should be more sensitive to leverage in that strategy. So for example, equity, which can move 50% very quickly, 
uh, leveraged funds bring in a lot of risk because the underlying volatility of your assets is already very high. Let's say the, the extreme proves the point, right? Um, if you take out a, a, a billion dollars of borrowing on behalf of your client and you stick it into CDs and money markets, as long as the interest rate differential works in your client's favor, they'll be fine with a huge leverage rate. Uh, but a penny of borrowing on a Powerball ticket is gonna get you a margin call, right? So if your asset quality is very high and it doesn't tend to be very volatile itself, you might be able to tolerate a higher leverage level than in another strategy where that's just not the case. Um, today, you know, a lot of closed-end fund investors, right or wrong, no matter what the strategy is, they tend to focus on their income first and foremost. And funds that have a lot of their income strategy based on that spread have to suffer today. Uh, the Fed has raised those expenses for the vast majority of funds. They're not locked into their leverage costs for a long time. And so if, from, from a user perspective, if people are first and foremost uh, concentrating on the, the ability of a fund to pass through cash flow today, um, lower leverage levels are probably going to work better for you. Helpful. So looking ahead, you know, who knows where we're going to go with the Fed and how long this is going to, this inflationary environment is going to be protracted. Um, you know, typically the market assesses fixed income funds by duration. They typically look at that. Uh, that's one of the things I imagine the analyst group looks at is, you know, the longer the duration, the more vol volatile or more vulnerable the fund may be to rising interest rates. Um, so it's always a consideration, I would imagine. Mariana, we talked a little bit about 1994, which, uh, you know, you were coming in and cutting your teeth, so to speak, and um, which was a horrible bond market, uh, as you know. And, and people ask about, well, what is this relative to 1994? What are your, th you know, what are your thoughts on that when you talk to clients? Um, it, it seems like a somewhat similar situation, um, but I would say 94, and this was only a few years after college, so to me 94 felt much worse and I stressed out so much more than 2008. It may sound weird, but 2008 to me was, oh, okay, yeah, it's tough, but 94 was hell for me. <laughs> um, and I, in 94, the years before that, there had been, somewhat similar to now, a lot of issuance, um, very concentrated in very high interest rate sensitive asset classes, munis and preferreds. What was different also then than now is, at least as far as I remember, that the Fed started increasing, but that was, at least as I remember, a complete surprise. Um, and short rates went up a lot, uh, and quickly, and long rates went up as well. Um, so that's kind of similar. Um, expected, unexpected, I think that makes a bit of a difference. Um, but back then in 94, nobody had really experienced the negative side of leverage. They had only seen the positive side. And with IPOs, the yields were still great, especially with leveraged yields that were great. And not too many people asked about, okay, so what extra risks am I getting into? So back in 94, I got a lot of questions, a lot of um, people panicking. Um, I'll, I'll never forget but when people were asking, what's wrong with this insured muni fund? That made it very clear that they were not 
getting it. I mean, this was interest rate risk. It's not, it was not about credit quality risk. Um, so again, I think there has been a lot of education and I know you too and all the analysts out there have done a lot of education on, on leverage and what it does. And after you see it a few times, you're, oh, okay, I got it. This is what happens when, uh, this is the impact of leverage when, when rates rise or when there's more volatility. Um, so it does feel very similar. Um, what I think is a little bit better now is had you invested in December of 1994 or January of 1995, um, you would be quite happy and would easily forget the, the pain that 94 was. Um, I would like to think that at some point in the hopefully near future, that point will come as well. Um, and I think we're definitely much closer to, I, I think we're closer to it. Um, and uh, people think, oh, geez, I wish I had had the guts to, to put some money to work in closed-end funds um, around that time. Um, so, uh, yes, there's a lot of parallels. A lot of parallels. Um, I would like to think that people are a bit more educated now and have gone through the experience a few times. And Alex, we, we talk about the dividend rates that are posted, but whether or not they're, they're, they're safe. In other words, is there continuity there? You know, and how that feeds into maybe a recent history return of capital. How how do you assess that sort of safe dividend definition, at least in your mind? Yeah. Um, well, so first of all, I think the answer is that it really matters on what the fund is invested in, right? I mean, I know that's like a real basic answer, but um, so let's just sort of like go through go through like the different permutations that you have. Um, in funds that have fixed rate assets and floating rate leverage, sort of like your prototypical levered muni fund, no more dividend cuts, almost assuredly. We have earnings right now that look like meh, and the September number is not in there. We got a bad CPI print today. We're probably gonna get another hike. Like, you could just sort of see that ball continuing to roll. Uh, in unlevered muni funds, where they don't have that expense issue, calls and maturities are totally their friend. The income should probably go up from here, if anything. Um, when it comes to the taxable fixed income funds, Again, you have some funds that have fixed rate assets and floating rate leverage. They tend to be the higher quality ones. Those could have a little bit of problems, just like their muni compatriots. Uh, in the lower quality funds, there is much more floating rate asset. Um, so just always look at the ratio of floating rate assets to floating rate leverage, and you can tell how that, that, that change should affect them. But the big the $64,000 question there is credit quality, right? If the Fed just keeps raising rates until defaults happen, until things start to break, um, you know, that, that won't be good for dividends, uh, I, I think we all know. Uh, and then the final one is in the equity funds where, like Mariana said before, that's mostly the province of managed distribution policies. Um, the boards try very, very hard to pick a distribution policy that they feel that they can stick through. They know that there's gonna be some rainy periods there and they, they try to pick a distribution policy that they think that they can hold. Um, but if the asset erosion becomes too much, um, something gives. So for advisors in the room and who think about distribution policies on equity funds, right? Think, think about RMDs that you run for your own clients. You know, if you have somebody who's in their mid-70s, they have to withdraw 7% of their account per last year's closing value. And now that the markets are down sort of like 25, 30%, depending on, on whose account you're looking at, that distribution is now a 10% distribution. And so 
next year it will be lower as a percentage, right? If that client who had to take 7% last year, this year has to take 7.2 or whatever it is, the overall dollar figure will be lower. It has a shock absorber. It has a way to reduce the distribution. And I think managers of these equity funds will look at the promise that their distribution is making. Are we now promising 10% where last year we felt comfortable at seven? Um, and that's where modifications, that's where changes in the distribution can happen. Um, a good way to tell, just a quick and dirty way to tell if your equity fund is quote unquote earning its dividend, just look at its NAV chart. Um, you know, we always tell our clients, look at the total return chart, look at it with the dividends added back in because that gives a truer idea of performance. When it comes to distribution stability, just look at the, just look at the net asset value chart clean. Uh, it's a lot like the water level in your bathtub. If the level in the tub is rising, then you know whatever's coming in through the spout is larger than what's leaving through the drain, and it's generally sustainable. If the, if the NAV level is dropping, especially if it's dropping pretty significantly, look at it this year, look at it compared to last year, look at a five-year number, look at it since the last time the board adjusted the dividend. Pick a couple of instances, and if that is steadily falling, steadily falling, this other goal of preserving assets under management that boards do pay attention to, I think, um, starts to play and then dividend cuts would come. So equity funds are a little bit more resilient, but they will eventually succumb if the markets are ugly for long enough. Yeah, and Mike, that's, I think, just as a, as a, as a follow-up on that, if you think, you know, again, if, it's, if you're typically, again, this year we made the point earlier, no, nothing's worked. You know, uh, bonds haven't worked, stocks haven't worked, you know, nothing's worked. We manage convertibles. Everybody's saying, well, why aren't convertibles up? Well, because convertibles were the play between the bond and the stock, and if both of them are down, there's, there's really nowhere to, to get the vigor, so everything's kaput. But typically in, a, in a, a more inflationary environment, equities tend to, on the margin, outperform fixed income. Um, and I think perhaps the market is recognizing that. Maybe that's why those, dis those discounts are lower in the stocks. Um, what are your thoughts on that? on that going forward? Do you think that's going to maintain or do you think, you know, we could get to a point where uh, earnings come out poorly in the third quarter, maybe they come out poorly in the fourth quarter and maybe we kind of get a little bit of a flip there? What, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think it's a good question. It, to me, when, you know, anytime I'm analyzing a particular closed-end fund, I mean, keep in mind they still do own certain asset classes, right? Like an equity fund owns equities, right? So I think, you know, I always start like, well, what's your view on the equity market? If you're positive on equities, um, that should be a good place to start, arguably, that, you know, maybe you want to lean into equity close-end funds. Uh, if you're uh, negative on municipals over the coming 12 to 18 months, you know, you probably should be negative on municipal closed-end funds, right? So that certainly is a starting point. There are so many other dynamics which we've all uh, discussed around uh, leverage and valuation and things like that that you certainly need to um, look into. And uh, quite frankly, you do, to Alex's point, uh, need to look at the distribution policy and how much they're earning versus how much they're paying out and look at what's happened to that NAV. Because inevitably, um, you know, one of the, 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 the biggest issues with, uh, you know, certain closed-end funds is you really do start to see that destructive return of capital 
and permanent NAV damage, right? And that's the scenario that you want to avoid, um, you know, especially, uh, you know, you, you, we often see it on the equity side where the fund has been paying out so much, the NAV is dropping and now you're eating to NAV more because you continue to pay this high payout. And then when and if the market does rebound, you never fully recoup your loss, right? Because you don't have all the assets working for you because you paid them out in the form of a distribution. So these are all things to, uh, you know, certainly consider, and that's, you know, one of the reasons why I don't think any of us like to see funds overpaying, right? That can be a longer term, uh, a real detriment uh, to, to performance. And listen, there are some funds that actually have made a living on overpaying for long periods of time. You know, and I think if you look at them, uh, their total return performance actually over meaningful periods of time, they do tend to underperform those funds that maybe pay a little bit less. So that's interesting. I mean, just to, just to highlight that a little bit, you know. So what you're saying is, if, I, if I'm getting this right, um, and this is an important point, that the, the the market is not necessarily hoodwinked by a fund that is paying a high distribution rate that it isn't earning. Perhaps there's a lot of return of capital there. They're not necessarily buying that. That stock is not necessarily getting rewarded for that because if they lift the cover, lift under the hood, they realize that this is. Smoke and mirrors. Is that is that what you're saying? Listen, I think in the short run, um, investors can be hoodwinked. But I think if you look at long periods of time, I think, you know, it, you can often see um, that those funds, quite frankly, don't outperform over the long run. No, and the sad thing is that uh, those funds typically have very, very high NAV distribution rates, and those tend to sadly command very high premiums. premiums yeah. So you would think, okay, the market notices that. Sadly, no. Um, they just see the yield, and not everybody is checking the NAV. Not yeah. everybody knows to check that whether the fund is trading at a premium or, or a discount. They just see the price, the yield, based on market price, and they say, oh, that's a 15% yield. I love it. I want more of that. And they have no idea that it may be trading at a 20% premium, 40% premium. So um, there, there's still too much. This is a tiny world. The Closton Fund world is a tiny world. and. Uh, there's still so much ignorance. Um, yeah. Can lack I add of familiarity? Yeah. Can I add just one thing to that too? There's a tendency, and I think that the, the subtext of what what both Michael and Mariana said is that a lot of investors don't run a separate calculation for what is my withdrawal rate. Right? They're depending on the board of directors of a closed end fund that has all sorts of cross currents in its decision making. It has to stay abreast of the 40 Act and distribute everything that it makes, all its gains, all its coupon, all its dividends, everything that it makes has to eventually be paid out. Those boards are also responsible for this very squishy science on how to keep discounts fairly tight and keep people happy and keep activists at bay. Uh, they want to pay their investors a yield that is very attractive to the market. There's a lot of things that work in a board of directors that is deciding what they're going to pay out and why. Um, and that is just a separate calculation entirely from my client and what they should be taking out of their accounts. So when Michael says, you see funds with large distributions of capital and over time their net asset values decline, I think it's important to say their net asset value per share declines, right? Because most people don't reinvest their dividends. So don't be surprised if you have a fund and you're withdrawing 15% of your capital a year that your investment returns are going to look 
lousier than somebody who hasn't done that, right? Uh, Doug Bond said in the second panel of the day, he said it's not time in the market. It's not timing the market that counts, it's time in the market. And when you have a massive distribution, 15% that some of these funds pay, and you are by you're by extension withdrawing that 15% from your investments every year and either spending it or sticking it in another account and not giving credit, well then expect that smaller investments over time, investments with larger withdrawal rates over time, are gonna have worse results. Um, but I think it's just really important to calibrate expectations that the spending rate that I opt to have, or that I am, that I, you know, if, if I withdraw 15% from my accounts every year because I need that to fill my bills, well, well, okay. But picking a fund that pays 15% isn't necessarily gonna make you more money than picking a fund that yields two. Uh, the, the distribution rate and the spending rate are two entirely separate calculations. The only thing about them that is similar is they're both quoted in percentages. Otherwise, don't take one for the other. It's a big mistake. Yeah, and it's, it's never a good practice to, to uh, pay money to get your own money back. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what, we're, well, unfortunately, what you get into. So we've got Would have given you the whole lie on negative bond yields the past <laughs> four years. Yeah, exactly. Got a little time left, okay? So we're going to have to go around quick. Um, you guys, obviously, you talk to a whole bunch of people. I think, you know, from your perspective, you guys are, are as pure as, a, as a, a perspective as you can get in the closed-end fund mm -hmm. business. Um, each of you, just starting with Mariana, what is your key takeaway at this point in 2022? Two minutes. Um, think about the long term. Uh, don't think that, uh, oh my goodness, uh, how much have I lost right now uh, in the last few weeks or in the last few months. I mean, think long term, at least five years, ten years. I mean, when we look at um, the funds and we look at performance and we look at uh, dividend sustainability, it's like, okay, five years at least, is this something that they can um, sustain? So definitely look long term because long term, most close end funds have done very well. Um, so that for sure. Um, lately we've been getting some questions on swaps. We're starting to get some of those questions. Mm -hmm. Not heavy, but we're getting some questions. And these are not, these are long-term vehicles. These are not trading vehicles and we all, right. that's the way they're sold. We all agree on that. Uh, Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, um, if I were going to take a lesson from 2022, ooh, uh, don't come to work in 2022. <laughs> um, if I were going to take a lesson from 2022, or just a lesson broadly on closed-end funds, is evaluation matters, right? Um, and there's, we, we sit here and we, like if you come to a closed-end fund conference, you're going to hear this word discount, 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 discount a million times. Um, when it comes to sort of like the equivalent of like balance sheet issues, right? 90 cents on the dollar is kind of self-explanatory as to why that's better than a dollar on the dollar. But also look at the impact on your yield, right? A lot of closed-end fund investors seek income. They're buying these vehicles for that point. Um, if I have a $10 fund that's distributing a dollar, it's a yield of 10%. If I can buy that at a 10% discount and pay nine bucks for it, I still get the dollar and my yield is 11.1, right? So in this world of of risk and trying to mitigate risk and finding a, you know, something where your reward is disproportionate to the risks that you're taking, um, be cognizant of discounts impact on yield and think about those from an income statement perspective, think about those against the fees, think about those against the other frictional costs that you have and that's another light on your dashboard that tells you whether it's safe to proceed or not. And Mike, I'll, I'll give you the last word. All right. Uh well, I would say, I mean, I just to echo Mariana and, and Alex's uh, points, um, you know, uh, uh, but one thing I would say, listen, you know, for when we, we're getting questions, 
entry points are a lot more attractive today than they were a year ago, right? And if arguably you were buying a year ago, you probably should be buying a lot more today. That's one thing I would say. And then the last thing I would leave you with, and I mentioned earlier, is, you know, um, and I think this is actually a negative, um, is quite frankly, I'm not getting the panicked calls, right? I mean, we do have investors that are down on some of their, you know, positions 30, 40, 50 percent, and they're quite frankly, they're not that panicked, I guess, because of everything else that's going on. But that typically, you know, is a negative sign, and quite frankly, we have not seen the capitulation yet, at least in the close end space. Fair. That's a very good point. We actually have two minutes left, so are there any? I think I got okay, Mr. Shack. Analysts will agree that distributions do serve as a barometer of market price to a large degree. I remember many years ago, an analyst, I think from Morgan Stanley at the time, Robert Lee, put out a paper about distributions. And in the paper, he said that distributions are, in fact, a barometer. And he made a point of whether they were earned or not. So the reconciliation of what you're looking for, I understand it from an analytical point of view. But to the retail customer, I'm not so sure they ever make that reconciliation. Also, I'd like you, to, from a board's perspective, if I agree that if a distribution's not sustainable, it's gonna be cut, and then the market price is gonna suffer as well. I think we could all agree with that, right? How many thank you letters is a board of director gonna get? You know, you thanks, you cut my distribution, and then you cut the stock on top of it. Funds like Cornerstone, CLM, which has about a 20% yield, refute the stigma of destructive return of capital. You may not philosophically agree with it, but it's inarguable that Cornerstone has used a premium enhancing return of capital to drive that fund to a big premium. If an activist is breathing down your neck, what would you rather do? maybe pay out a little bit more, or would you prefer to pay attorneys to fend it off? Okay, so can I, can I, oh, have I yeah. All right, I volunteer. Okay, um, <laughs> so first of all, I agree with you, but up to a point, and I think everything is a spectrum, and there is, as you know, as I, I'm a parent of young kids, everyone here is a parent, um, you can go too far, right? And so, let's put it this way. Um, if I have a fund, again, it's a $9 fund with a $10 asset value, and there's a news flash that night that the fund is going to liquidate itself and pay a $10 distribution at the close of business tomorrow, it will trade at $10 right now, and it'll go right up to there. So there's a point that a large distribution, in this example, 100% return of capital, will make the fund trade at par. It'll close the discount. Now, that is a destructive return of capital because it's going to destroy the fund, and it's going to send the share price to zero after that distribution is made. Destructive for the fund, constructive for the investor, yes. Um, when you have funds that trade at 20% premiums because they're paying out what they know is an unsustainable number and then are dependent on rights offerings and chronic, other- Chronic rights offerings. Chronic, right, and, and other highly unfriendly shareholder policies. Dilutive. Then the, then the then what Michael said really comes to the fore. You look at the long-term returns, and an S&P 500 fund is gonna kill that thing. And it's much cheaper, and it's much easier, and you have no arbitration issues with your internal compliance asking why you're putting people into 25% premium funds that conduct rights offerings all the time. 
You know, and so, yes, this goes back, like, so when I made that point about all of the different decisions that a board of directors is trying to reconcile, all the different factors that a board of directors is trying to factor when they come up with a distribution policy, one of them is, yeah, don't make it too low because the fund will trade terribly. That's reasonable. Um, but when you start putting an unsustainable number on it, 20, 25%, for your garden variety client, and we deal with them all the time, I know you have too, um, they're gonna take that 25% distribution as a license to spend 25%. And they're gonna have a horrible, horrible outcome. And so I think part of it is, yeah, sure, short term, does it like, yeah, is a little bit of sugar gonna make you feel good? Sure. Charlie Munger said difference between short term and long term, right? He's like, in the short term, I could just, you know, start using heroin, it would be a great week, but it would be a lousy long term decision. <laughs> and I think 25% distributions are just as addictive and just as bad. Thanks very much. And we're out of time. We appreciate your, yeah. Do you, you have a question? Oh, yeah, sure. Go, go right ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, so again, all, this, all the circumstances are different. But in the case, and again, I can't mention individual funds and individual ticker symbols, there are some funds where the rights offering is, is a part of doing business. In, in order to ensure the continuity of, an, of a non-sustainable policy, they have to do that. Um, if I have a fund that is just being run real well, it's produced awesome returns, everybody for the moment loves it, it's trading at a 10% premium, me and almost everybody else in the room pretty much knows that those are not going to be sustainable. So if a manager trades some of that short-term pain with a rights offering or something like that, but is accretive to the NAV and benefits everybody in the long run, hey, I understand. It's not great, but it's not terrible. But when I get a manager who comes to me and they've been doing rights offerings at discounts, they've been doing chronic rights offerings, big ones, big dilutive ones all the time, I, I can't. That's not good. ATMs can be accretive to the NAV, can add to performance, um, and it's actually a luxury of those funds that trade at premiums. Um. But not all of them. You do find some funds at discounts that will pull that CRAP every once in a while, and it's not cool yeah. um, to go to a retail investor and say, they're holding a proverbial gun to your head saying, send us 10% more principal or else we're going to dilute you. That's a decision that the advisor and the client should make. It's not the bad, ex bad experience. Bad experience. Yeah. Okay, Mark? Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, folks. Appreciate your time cool. and your patronage.